This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Tortoise. Hello, welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm Rachel Wolf, And I'm John Curtis. This week, we're turning our attention to the presidential election race in the United States. As many of you will know, on November the 5th, Americans will choose a new president. And it looks highly likely that this year's race will be a repeat of 2020. Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. So how will we get there? How will we select our presidential nominees and what at the moment uh, looks likely to happen and why. I'm absolutely delighted to say we're joined once again by Professor Christopher Carmen, who's a US politics expert and academic from the University of Glasgow. Chris, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me back. Since most of our listeners are likely to be immersed in British rather than American politics, can you just do a very quick explainer of how what we would call here a leadership election works in the States? How do we get to choosing whether it's Trump and Biden? And then talk a bit about what looks like it's happening right now. Yes, it's a long and complicated process. But I think there's one one sort of important fact to get your heads around before even really diving into the particulars of the, the nominating contests, which is to remember that, um, in a sense, primaries represent an historic tension in the U.S. over the role of political parties in the wider popular political system. So uh, if we go back to, to the founding period in 1787 when they're writing the Constitution, the, the, the founders didn't write parties into the Constitution. In fact, they didn't even think that they should at least notionally exist. President Washington, when he stepped down from serving as president, warned against, explicitly warned against the idea that parties should be formed, saying that they would be a negative in the political system. So Parties have have never really been embraced in the American political system. And if we now flash forward to the modern period, people don't really join political parties in the sense, in the way they do in, say, European countries. So when you go to register to vote in the United States, you're asked whether you support the 
Democrats, the Republicans, or some other party. But that, Chris, is a is also a crucial difference, right? That the state actually registers your political preference, which would be unthinkable on this side of the water. Correct, and that's but that's as much as you get to really quote most people get to quote unquote joining a party is just to say with the state, yeah, I kind of register, I kind of I support this party more than that party. So each state holds a nominating event, nominating contest some form of election, which then the people competing are trying to amass delegates. Those delegates are individual people who are sent to the national conventions in the summer to support the nomination of one of the candidates. Now, I know I probably shouldn't ask this question because I suspect the answer is more complicated than I would like, but who can vote in these primaries or who can attend these courses? You You anticipated where I was going, John. So the, the simple version is to say that each state... And these primaries begin early in the year in which an election is held. Each state will hold a nominating event, and they largely get to determine their own rules. The national parties try to impose some sort of calendar. This year, that didn't go terribly well, but they try to impose some sort of calendar as to when the states schedule. So they're not all falling on the same day. They happen throughout the, the early uh, part of the year and it, through the spring. The states decide uh, who can vote in their nominating contests. So some states make it such that you must register your preference with a political party to vote in that political party's nominating event, which seems kind of self-evident and obvious that you should, quote unquote, join a party in order to vote in that party's nominating event. But many other states allow what are called open primaries. And in these primaries, independents or even people who are registered supporting the other party in some states can vote in the party's nominating event. So in some states, you could be an independent or a Democrat and vote in a Republican primary, for instance. But I guess one big difference is that in Britain, a very small percentage of the population are involved in choosing the leader of a political party, whereas in America, it is actually much more a mandate for or, or a selection from quite a large proportion of you. Or is it? Turnout is is low in the in the in the primaries. I mean, we we can it it varies on on the state. It varies on whether or not both contests are happening at the same. You know, a lot of factors. So it you know, as we talk about in the U.S. Quite often we end up saying it depends on the state we're talking about, but you can get uh, turnout 20%, 30%, depending on, on the states. Uh, some, some states a little bit higher, but uh, it's not huge. And it is the partisans who are mostly turning out in these, in these contests. Now, I think, Rich, the, the, the idea by, you know, why do we even have these primaries? sort of slightly motivates your, your question as well. And, and that takes us back to this progressive era, the early 1900s in the US. And it was the idea that previously the nominees were decided by, you know, the bunch of of white guys sitting around in a smoke-filled room, quite literally sitting around in a smoke-filled room at the party conventions and deciding who would be the party nominees. Starting with the progressive era, the idea was to move it from that situation where it was just the elites of the party to the populace. Uh, more broadly. And so there's various ideas about how 
how how wide do you want to spread it? And that's the open versus closed primaries, who can participate and who can't. But it is very much the, the idea that it is for the wider population to be involved in determining who the party nominees are. And it can be people who aren't even necessarily members of those parties. But of course, we also had, you know, you can think of Bernie Sanders competing against Hillary Clinton for the nomination in 2016. Bernie Sanders isn't even a Democrat, and he was competing for the Democrat nomination. So the, the American system is a bit more open in that sense in terms of allowing uh, or accommodating the participation of people who aren't plugged in as much to the parties. So let's talk about where we are now, what's happening with Trump and indeed Biden. Um, but just before we do that, are the people who are voting as Republicans in these primaries the same kind of people who would have voted Republican in primaries 10 years ago? Are they the same voters? They're just now voting for Trump. Or are they fundamentally different people or different bits of the electorate? It's a good question. I, I, I think to, fundamentally is probably a bit too strong of a term, but we do know that the Trump base has shifted, right? So... If we look at the sort of old Republican Party of the 1980s, right, uh, that's when that the Republican Party, uh, we would have said, was the party that tended to be of the more educated of the people with, you know, higher percentage of people with university degrees, for instance, and that shifted. So now people with university degrees tend to be supporting the Democrats, whereas non-university attenders, people with uh, just secondary school degrees, would be the ones who more support Donald Trump. So the coalitions have shifted across a variety of different demographic factors. And so it's, it's not the same pool necessarily that you would have been fishing in for the nomination, you know, that Ronald Reagan would have fished in for the no nomination in 1980 versus Donald Trump fishing in in 2024. So there is quite a close parallel with what is happening here, not exactly, but that the young graduate class has shifted left, even if they're relatively high income, and less educated older people have shifted to the Republican. Yes, but if we talk about younger people, younger people are quite difficult to sort of track right now uh, because they're not very happy with Biden. But yes, generally speaking, what you're saying is, is right. People are basically sorting into their natural parties more so than they were previously. We started this podcast saying, oh, look, we know what's going to happen. It's going to be Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. So why, wh where are we at in this race? And why is it that apparently, although there are going to be all these uh, uh, primaries that people are going to get the chance to vote in, we already know what the answer is. And is this unusual? Are we usually seemingly as clear as to who is going to be the candidates on, in both parties this early in election year? It is quite early, right? So we've only had a handful of states have their nominating events so far. To answer your question of, is this the shortest time then we're coming to a conclusion? We can look to 1992 when Bill Clinton wrapped up the nomination for the Democrats after about 39 days. In 2004, John Kerry wrapped it up at about after 45 days. And in 2000, Al Gore won the Democratic nomination after 46 days, but that was after only 19 states held their nominating contest. So a long story short, this 
probably isn't going to be a record breaker for Donald Trump in terms of the number of days, although there will be a debate as to whether or not Nikki Haley constitutes a competitive race. But it will be in terms of the number of primary stroke caucuses actually held before we get to the point where, as it were, it's pretty clear who's going who's going to get there. Well, in I think the last bit of your sentence makes that me to, to answer yes. That is till it's pretty clear who's going to get there, because right now it's pretty clear that it's going to be Donald Trump and not Nikki Haley. All things being equal, assuming that nothing changes in terms of, say, the criminal trials that Donald Trump faces ah. uh, or that there's not some sort of you know, health event or something like that. Well, that, take, that, that, that just takes us to one other kind of crucial question before we, we move on and kind of look forward to Biden versus Trump, assuming that's what it's going to be. I mean, where, where does Donald Trump stand in his legal cases? And is there any prospect that any of these cases could legally debar him from being a candidate in November? In order to be president of the United States, you have to be 35 years of age, you have to have been born in the U.S., and you have to have been resident in the U.S. If you are convicted of some sort of armed felony and you are serving jail time, you could still be elected president of the United States. There is no exclusion um, for anything except we could debate, and this is one of the issues that's being debated in the Supreme Court, whether or not the 14th Amendment, Section 3, excludes somebody who previously committed insurrection from serving as president. That is a hot topic of debate and is being adjudicated, as we speak, hopefully, by the Supreme Court. And it's relevant because of the, it's relevant because of the January the 6th um, storming of Cong Congress. Yeah. Correct. And, and sorry, when you say adjudicated, adjudicated by whom? And if they decide that it does disqualify them and the voters have selected Trump, what happens then? Oh, boy, this starts to get fun. Right. So um, adjudicated by whom? So, so far, Colorado and Maine um, have said that Trump cannot appear on the ballot because in their findings, he committed insurrection on January 6th. 2021, when um, he encouraged his supporters to attempt to stop the uh, certification of the vote in the U.S. Congress. So those states have said he can't appear on their ballot because of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, excluding people who committed insurrection from holding office. That has, was, has been appealed. And to be fair, those states stayed their ruling so that he actually does still appear on the ballots until the Supreme Court has a chance to weigh in, because it was obvious that this was going to go to the Supreme Court. In a moment, we'll discuss what might happen next. Who's going to win, Trump or Biden? First, though, a short break. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches and fine jewellery, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. 
So, uh, Chris, something I just picked up, but I mean, how relevant is this? If we take the average of the recent polls, <clears throat> Donald Trump, 47, Joe Biden, 45. So given the process that decides who is president, does that mean, does that necessarily mean that if the presidential election were tomorrow, that Donald Trump would win? No. So the national polls give us all something to talk about, but the U.S. presidential election is decided on a state-by-state -state basis. So this is what's called the Electoral College in the United States. The Electoral College consists of 538 votes. You need 270 of those votes to be elected president. So there is no popular presidential election in the United States. It's mediated through this electoral college. Each state gets a number of representatives or a number of electors in the electoral college based on its number of representatives in the House of Representatives, which is basically tied to the state population. So California has far more than, say, Wyoming, plus two for the number of senators because every state has two senators. So uh, you're, what, what the presidential candidates are trying to do is win on a state-by-state -state contest. And just to make it more fun and interesting, 48 of the states award their electoral college votes on a, a plurality basis. You need to get the most of the votes to win. And two states, Nebraska and Maine, have a more complicated system for awarding those uh, votes. So the crucial point then presumably is that Although you have most votes across the United States as a whole, given the way in which the Electoral College votes are, are meted out, the person who has most votes doesn't necessarily win the Electoral College to become president, which, if I remember right, rightly, is what happened in 2016 when Donald Trump first became president, or indeed back in 2000 when uh, George Bush beat Al Gore. Correct. Absolutely. And so that means that what we start doing is we start looking at the state level polls uh, and we start trying to figure out uh, who's going to win on a state by state basis. And then if you are a particularly political anarchy type person, you start going onto your map uh, and you start coloring in the different states and trying to figure out how the electoral votes are going to split between the states. So how are Trump and Biden doing in what we tend to call of as the, the, the swing states, you know, like Michigan or Arizona or whatever, the ones where, as it were, uh, Republicans and Democrats start off more or less neck and neck um, uh, in any particular election? There's about six states or so in 2020 in the Biden versus Trump contest where it was all but a 50-50 split. And in fact, Joe Biden won Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia with just under 50% of the vote in those states. So just, just, just to put it into British language, Chris, these are the marginal seats. That's exactly right. Most of them right now in the state-level polls seem to be sort of breaking towards Trump. Now, we can start to wonder what happens if we insert potential third-party candidates in there. That is, candidates who are not Democrats or Republicans who have no chance of winning the presidential election. But if they took three, four, five percentage from one candidate more than they do the other, could possibly sway the outcome of particular states. 
But most of these swing states, except for Pennsylvania right now, look like they're breaking towards Trump. But most of them are so close, it's very difficult to say. And most really probably are within a margin of error. Two crucial questions that flow from what you've just said, Chris. One is, how reliable are the polls this far out? And two, how reliable are the polls in general? I mean, is there not a record whereby the polls have tended to uh, underestimate Trump relative uh, to Biden, certainly in 2020, much as often here, polls tend to uh, underestimate the Conservatives relative to Labour? And might, in fact, Trump's position be stronger than the polls are saying. How reliable are the polls this far out? As any election watcher will know for almost any country that you're looking at, the further out the polls are, the less reliable they are in telling us exactly what the outcome is going to be. I think this year it'll be a challenge to predict the outcome because of the way that the coalitions are sort of breaking down a little bit in the splits that we see within the parties. So, the broad question, the broad response to your answer, John, is is that at this stage, the polls are perhaps we might think of them as indicative, but not necessarily reliable. They give us a sense for where the direction of of, of travel, but there's still a, a big margin of error around them in terms of predicting the final outcome. Okay, so as I, as I said, as I sometimes put it, polls should be taken but not inhaled at this stage. Exactly. That's a good one. So the uh, how reliable are they in general? Um, there have been some blips uh, in the last several cycles. Um, we, we know that there has been a problem in measuring Trump support in 2016. However, I think you could question as to whether or not that same problem would hold in this cycle. People are quite willing to be rather loud vocal supporters of Trump, perhaps maybe a bit more than they were in 2016. And indeed, Nate Cohen of the New York Times has recently put out an article wondering, uh, sort of wondering aloud, speculating whether or not actually we might have more shy Biden voters this time around than you do Trump voters. So it's a, it's a bit of a, of a, of a difficult one to, to sort out at this stage, to tell you the truth. I think from Britain... And from the press in Britain on Trump, first of all, there's a sort of bafflement that anyone would vote for this guy. And then the second is that the issues that filter through are issues that matter to Europe. So it's his views on Ukraine, to an extent Israel, and some of his just kind of broader cultural rhetoric. But is that what is driving votes domestically? Why are people opting for Trump out of the possible Republican nominees? And why are they looking like they might opt for Trump over Biden? So I think with the, um, if we're looking at people's evaluations of the issues, we have more so than we ever have had before, polarization in how people view the world based on their political sense of who they are, right? So the views of the economy is, a, is, a, is, is quite telling on this one. We know that from the day that Biden was inaugurated, Republican evaluations of the economy went through the floor. When Trump was president, Republicans thought the economy was doing very well. When Biden was inaugurated as president, suddenly we saw a huge switch. 
We see that switch as well with Democrats, to be fair, not to the extent that we see it with Trump supporters particularly. So I think in discussing the issue about issues, one big thing to, to realize is that uh, because of polarization, people are amazingly tribal in their views of the issues. Yeah, and it's, and it's just worth saying that this was not true of the United States in the 1960s or the 1970s. We, we often talk about the United States as a, as a, a, a political entity where uh, politicians from different parties would work together, et cetera, et cetera, that there weren't very sharp dividing lines. But now, particularly when you get to issues like abortion, gun laws, et cetera, we've got, uh, uh, we've got this incredibly remarkable uh, polarization which has occurred, yeah. Absolutely. My co-author David Barker and I have a project where we're looking at public preferences for political compromise in the United States. The extent to which you think that politicians you support should be compromising with the other side. And what we have seen over the quite a few years that we've been collecting survey data on that is that Republicans really do not like the idea of compromising with the other side. Now, Recently, we've started to see this cropping up with Democrats as well, particularly on the progressive wing of Democrats, less willing to, to, to compromise on the far side. But it largely so far has been driven by, by Republicans just not liking the idea of working with the other side. So you're right, John, that traditionally in the U.S., working across the aisle was seen as something that members of Congress did. Um, and now, particularly if you look at the dynamics of what's happening in the U.S. House of Representatives, that is just something that does not happen to the extent that it did before. What is the issue? Is there one that is driving people apart in America? It comes down to some sort of sense of emotive response to politics, of a feeling of the world is changing around us and we are feeling very uncertain about the world. We feel very nervous about the world and we want some degree of certainty. So in both the US and the UK, for instance, we've seen an uptick in the percentage of people willing to say that we need a strong leader. We need somebody who's going to sort this out. We are willing to support somebody who is willing to break the rules in order to make sure that we are all safe and secure, that the economy continues to run well, that we're not being forced to change our culture. So there's a variety of, of things there, but it, there is that sense with what, how Trump resonates with his base in many ways, is as much an emotive sort of element to it as there is a particular sort of cleavage issues. Yeah, but it, but it is but but isn't it isn't it the power of social issues, issues like abortion, gun laws, immigration, and also in the United States. And th th this is different. United States is a much more religious country in the UK. Rachel and I previously have talked about the decline of religion. But the United States is, has, to some degree, has been the exception to that rule. And the way in which Trump in particular has managed to mobilize uh, Christian evangelicals, whereas the Democrats are uh, much more reliant on those who don't have much in the way of religious identity. And in a way that goes to, to sort of what I was saying. So there is there is this uh, culture war issues um, as, as we you know, refer to them. Um, yes, Trump has managed to secure the evangelical base. The evangelicals really support Donald Trump uh, far more than they did, even if you go back to, say, Ronald Reagan, right, um, which was the first president who really sort of captured the, the evangelical 
uh, vote. Um, so Trump, you know, commands um, the the evangelical vote in the U.S. But as you say, it is it is declining in sort of church attendance and church adherence, but not church identity, right? Um, and that's that's the difference there. But this does this does then raise a fascinating question because Bill Clinton said, "It's the economy, stupid." So are we saying that this election is not about the economy and uh, like other recent contests, it's primarily uh, determined by people's views on social issues or is the economy got a role to play here? Because certainly, you know, um, Biden's ratings on the economy are not that good. He tends to be in pretty negative territory. People in the United States are much more likely to say that the economy is getting worse than getting better. But is this not a source of Joe Biden's problems at all? Well, it is, um, except for the fact that, and I, and I think the last time I was on the podcast, we talked about the, the disconnection between public opinion views of the economy and actual um, sort of objective measures of, of economic performance. And the public opinion is lagging further behind the objective measure than what we would sort of, quote unquote, normally expect. That said... There is some indication that the public is coming around on economic measures. Certainly, the Biden administration is hoping that people realize that the economy is actually doing pretty well in the United States by the time that the election comes around. And as you say, uh, Biden is upside down in his approval ratings. He's about nine, minus 17 on the economy. Um, but that's not the worst issue. The worst issue for him seems to be immigration, in which he's which minus, back to the social dimension. minus yeah. 33, right? So that takes us back to the social dimension, fear of change, and those sorts of, of, of elements. Chris, we've, we've, we've talked about some of the crucial issues, and we talked earlier about some of the demographic differences. But I guess we should also just talk a little bit about the individuals. Mr. Biden's age and Mr. Trump's rather frequent court appearances. Do these matter? Yes, they do matter. So Biden's age ties into concern about not just President Biden, but also Vice President Harris, who is not the most popular uh, politician in the United States. You know, there has been a lot of coverage in the U.S. about the, the differential treatment of Biden's age versus Trump's age, of course, because Biden, you know, Biden being 81, Trump being only four years younger than Biden. And so, you know, the the, the presentation of the individuals um, has been quite a bit different. But it's also it's also how the individuals present themselves, Correct. to be yes. frank. I mean, all of us looking on the TV feel like there is a difference in how old Biden and Trump appear. Absolutely. So Biden, you know, he has visibly changed as, you know, all presidents do when they serve as as presidents, but he is distinctly visibly changed. You know, he the way he walks, you know, he now uses what's called the short stairs to get into Air Force 1 as opposed to that long staircase that they that the presidents tended to to always use. His speech is not as robust as it was whereas Trump you know, still has that sort of booming presentation in his uh, campaign events. But just to say, you know, if we look at the number of campaign events that both of these individuals are holding, they've both 
rolled back substantially from previous years. So age is an issue for Biden. Absolutely. For Trump, age is not as much of a, of a negative for him for whatever reason. But as you said, John, the, the criminal trials. And what we do know is that when he was indicted, actually, his fundraising went up and his support went up. And so amongst his base, this is not a negative. But that helps him get the nomination for the Republican Party. It doesn't necessarily help him get the general election vote. And that's the thing that we have to watch is where independents fall on Trump's legal issues. And that, I think, is going to be the big challenge for Trump in the general election. This has been fascinating. And we'd love to have you on again, Chris, in the future, not least to understand exactly what might change in the world, depending on who becomes president next time, because we all have a stake in this, even if we don't get to even if we don't get to vote. But for now, thank you so much for explaining what is going on and what might happen next. Before we go, a quick word about Tortoise's new investigative series, Who Trolled Amber? Millions of people watched the trial of Johnny Depp versus his ex-wife Amber Heard in the United States in 2022. Amber Heard lost and Johnny Depp was vindicated. But what if Heard was actually the victim of an organised trolling campaign? What if the online hate against her was manufactured? In a year when billions of people are heading to the polls, Who Trolled Amber shines a light on the shady industry of social media manipulation. It reveals how bots and trolls can sway opinions from celebrity trials to general elections. What comes to mind when you think of Amber Heard? A liar? A survivor? A narcissist? The trial of Depp v Heard was a global phenomenon, but I want to know, was it a fair fight? I'm Alexi Mostris, the host of Sweet Bobby and Hoaxed. In my new podcast, I'm investigating whether Amber Heard was the victim of an organised trolling campaign. Just search for Who Trolled Amber wherever you get your podcasts. The first two episodes are out now, and new episodes will be released weekly. To listen to the entire series now, become a Tortoise member or subscribe to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts. That's it from Trendy for this week. I'm Rachel Wolf, And I'm John Curtis. We'll be back again next week. Tortoise.